This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. One of the things that we can tell ourselves is that good solitude is actually a friend in our fight against loneliness. Are you lonely? And has COVID-19 made us more lonely? Well, we know that loneliness is a common human trait, but how might we begin to name our own loneliness and alleviate the loneliness of others? Listen in to my conversation with researcher Susan Metis about her book, The Loneliness Epidemic, and what we might do to help alleviate it. Just a note, there is likely a little bit of lag here in this conversation technologically. Susan is in Tanzania, and the internet connection might be a little bit spotty in East Africa. Nevertheless, this is worth your time. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. In this season of the Finding Holy podcast, we are exploring themes about going back in order to move forward. So whether we're looking backwards in time, in history, through theology, or even in our own stories, we're going to be talking about what does it look like to embrace our past so we can embrace our future. Stay with us. I'm excited to welcome Susan Metis to the podcast today. She is the author of the book called The Loneliness Epidemic, and it's all about why particularly many of us feel alone and how leaders can respond to this epidemic. So thanks for being here, Susan. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself um, and where this book came from and your own interest in the topic. Yeah, so I have I've had a variety of different positions, but most of them have involved uh, studying people and and asking people about what's important in their lives. So um, right now, I am mainly an editor at Christianity Today. For the previous about ten years, I was doing various forms of research. And uh, that included a lot of opinion research, so interviewing people and surveying people on what's going on in their lives and what's important to them. And when I was working with Barna Group on a series of projects, uh, what kept coming up was that loneliness was really playing a big role in people's lives, and especially young people. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to explore that further, and the book was, um, the book came out of those uh, explorations of of those interviews, of those surveys. That's great. Well, yeah. So what did that loneliness epidemic look like for young people particularly? What are, what would you say are the few things that we could characterize 
an epidemic of loneliness versus just like, hey, I'm not feeling so great today. Yeah. Well, it has to do with what it's doing to our society. And um, one of the things that we can see very clearly is that loneliness is affecting a lot of Americans and it's affecting them pretty profoundly. When we look at young people in particular, about two thirds of them say that on a weekly basis, they feel lonely. And that's not all of them feeling lonely all the time, mm-hmm. but it's a fair number of them. It's 22% of millennials who said they felt lonely all the time. Um, so that's about one in five people who are uh, these days about 40 and under. Um, that's a pretty big deal. And it has these effects on our society that go beyond people just feeling not great. Uh, they have health effects. Mm-hmm. So people uh, are more likely at, and of course, everybody's 100% likely to die, but people <laughs> at any given moment are more likely to die if they're lonely. So that means mm. earlier deaths. It means more health problems. It means heart trouble. It means sleep trouble. It means all sorts of things that you see when you get other effects of, of stress. But loneliness seems to have a unique effect on people. Mm-hmm. And it's different than just uh, people who are isolated. We actually see that that feeling that you're lacking something in your relationships has those effects. Mm-hmm. So the epidemic is also because it spreads. It spreads from person mm-hmm. to person. And um, in in kind of this good, bad news thing, a lot of the things that are going on in our lives do have this contagious aspect to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, loneliness is a bit contagious. So is unloneliness. Uh, just like... Uh, the obesity epidemic also seems to spread mm. in a similar way. Um, and a lot of things in our lives are just things that when they affect us are highly likely to affect the people that are close to us. Hmm. How is loneliness contagious? Cause you'd think like loneliness would then promote isolation and therefore we, you know, we wouldn't necessarily spread it to other people so that they feel lonely. Does social media play a part in that? Well, it's really hard to untangle exactly what's going on with that contagiousness, but it doesn't seem to spread online. (laughs) It seems to spread um, with the people who are physically close to us, like neighbors and friends Mm. that live within walking distance, uh, family members who we see on a daily basis. And the reason for that is that loneliness isn't actually being near other people. It is being satisfied with your relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. So in an example of of a married couple, if one person is lonely, the other is very likely to be lonely as well. Mm -hmm. And that's because uh, dissatisfaction with that relationship, wanting something more or different out of it, that that is is something that will affect both people involved. Uh, Similarly, I think that what we're looking at is, is something that we communicate without saying the words about it when we're relating to other people. Mm. Yeah. So what do we, what would you say are maybe the top reasons why we, we in this time particularly are going through this epidemic of loneliness as Americans and as, and you, you say too, that there's a generational effect of it, right? That the younger people tend to be more lonely than, than older people. Yeah, well, I think we can point uh, most clearly, I, I mean, this is pretty general, but lifestyle. So um, the the amount of time that we're spending 
not socializing has grown. Young people socialize less in person than previous generations at the same age. Um, all Americans are reporting fewer close friends and fewer friendships in general, uh, fewer people that they talk with about important matters. So we're seeing kind of this reduction in both intimacy and the fun that we have with other people. And uh, we can expect that to make us lonely. Why are we doing that? Well, there, everybody blames social media, and I think it does, it does certainly play a role. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, for example, can kill the drive to go out and do something with other people when we feel bored. Um, and that, in the end, is going to come back as loneliness. But we also mm-hmm. can say social media isn't, it's a tool. It's not something that is, you know, apart from our consent, making us lonely. Um, but the way that we use right. it can help or hurt our social lives. And I think also we have to look at um, the bigger factors in our society, like marriage. Marriage is one of the main things that protects against loneliness. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. you hear people talking about uh marriage, there, there are myths about marriage, right? One, on the one hand, some people think it'll solve all of your problems. It doesn't. On the other hand, a lot of people think it'll end all your fun. Well, it doesn't do that either. It actually is really life-giving for most people who are married. It is a, a very uh, wonderful thing. And uh, so when you have a, this huge uh, change in the age of marriage and in the rates of marriage, you're going to see that having an effect on our loneliness as well. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So what do we do, you know, as churches, as leaders, as we think about this loneliness, that could, this epidemic of loneliness, um, how might we begin to create thicker communities? Um, you know, how might we support marriages? What does it look like to begin to reclaim loneliness, you know, and, you know, because I think, you know, as we think about loneliness too, there's the sense in which we don't, at the same time as we're lonely, we also don't know how to be alone very well, I think, you know, as a culture. So, you know, so how do we create both the communities and, you know, the opportunity for people to be in solitude and silence and all of those things we see Jesus practicing as well? Yeah, I think, I think you named a number of really good um, topic areas for addressing loneliness. So starting with the last one, the solitude, that's, that is an interesting thing about what I turned up with these surveys is that people who said they didn't have privacy also said they felt lonely. And so what you see is people don't actually, they feel intruded on, they don't feel like they're getting that quality solitude and it's rising that, that feeling of lacking solitude is rising with the feeling that they are lonely, um, so I, I, one of the things that we can tell ourselves is that good solitude is actually a friend in our fight against loneliness. I can't point to a causal link; I don't have anything that shows that. But we know that solitude helps us with a lot of things having to do with self-regulation. Of course, if you're looking at it from a spiritual angle and from a um, a prayer angle, solitude is really important. It helps us uh, stop being as self-aware in some ways and being more self-aware in others that are really good and healthy for us. So um, yes, practicing good solitude. And I think the easiest way for most of us to improve our solitude is to put those devices away for a while. Um, Whether it's 
you know, a half hour or uh, a day a week uh, to just not allow those intrusions um, to, to be something that is a possibility, even if it doesn't happen that somebody texts us. So I think, uh, yeah, working on the quality of our solitude and allowing solitude for others. I would also say, though, that that doesn't mean that living alone is going to help us. Uh, a lot of Americans live alone. And for some of them, that's working out fine, particularly for older adults. That, that doesn't seem to be something that's a big problem. But when you look at younger adults and the amount of time that they spend alone, the rate at which they live by themselves, it doesn't seem to be helping them much in terms of loneliness and relationships. So I think one of the things that you can look at is how do you make a pleasant living situation that allows you to incorporate others, whether it's through hospitality, whether it's through um, you know, better ways of, of rooming together, um, or one of the other things you mentioned is lowering the barriers to marriage. So we do have a lot of people who are attached, who are in relationships, and who aren't getting married for a variety of reasons. Some of those are, are reasons that you want to pay attention to and you want to say, well, maybe, you know, if you really aren't ready to commit to this person, then don't get married. But on the other hand, some people are ready to commit to that person. And what what is standing in the way is financial stability or, um, you know, they want to buy a house first or they're, um, you know, they want to have a wedding in June. We can help out with those things as a society. We can advocate for policies to make sure people don't get financially penalized when they get married. We can uh, we can help our churches to um, to to make lower cost weddings for for the people who really want to get married, want it to be a fun celebration, but don't have thirty thousand dollars for that. Um, and I think that those things might help us turn the tide on on these uh, romantic relationships where people want to get married but aren't for practical reasons. Another thing, so churches can also talk about loneliness in a way that's not derogatory. And I should say, I haven't heard pastors talk about loneliness in a derogatory way, um, but I I know from the data that a lot of Christians think that feeling bad is bad, that when they feel lonely, it's something to be embarrassed about, or it's something that means they're not close to Jesus. And I think they need to hear from, from the, the people that they look to as spiritual authorities, that loneliness does strike us all, that it is a problem, but it's not something that you're doing that's sinful. It's something that um, you can start to address without feeling ashamed of it. And uh, that might really open up a lot of doors for us to address the loneliness of people who are, you know, needing more company, needing closer friendships, and just a little embarrassed to talk about that as a need. Yeah. And so I'd love to just pivot a little bit and talk about your own experience with loneliness. You, before we started recording, you told me you're, you're currently in Tanzania, which is fascinating. And so you have you have navigated a lot of different places and spaces. So how have you, maybe even in your own life, taken some of this research to heart to think about good solitude and 
being a part of community, the importance of neighborhoods, you know, your own marriage. I'd love to hear how some of the research has borne itself out for you personally. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funny thing is that I've taken almost none of my advice, my own advice when it comes to preventing loneliness. <laughs> and, and that is because, you know, I, I'm in a situation where I feel called to this lifestyle that puts me at greater risk of loneliness. Um, so yeah, I have, mm. I've been a foreigner in three different countries for two years. And um, being a foreigner means that you're you're highly likely to be lonely, especially when you don't speak yeah. the language and you don't feel understood and you don't understand. Um, so yeah, that's that's one of the things that um, is part of my life is dealing with the loneliness and the isolation that comes with being a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Another thing is I I was single until my mid thirties, um, and mm-hmm. so when you know when I talk about singleness, it's out of this. Um, it's, it's out of empathy. It's, it's you know saying I, I'm really happy I'm married. I'm I love being married, but I really do understand what it's like to be, you know, fully completely an adult, and look around you and say, well, I think I can expect to be single. How do I make the most of this? And finding some things that were going well um, with with church ministries and with friends from church, and some things that were not going well. In fact, uh, some of the other women at my my church several years ago who were also single, um, we were we were in a room together and we started talking about how the two things that just kept coming up for all of us were your emergency contacts, and none of us had somebody that we felt good about giving out as an emergency contact because we all lived away from our other family. Um, and then minor holidays, like Christmas and Thanksgiving, we were usually covered. Easter, Fourth of July, even New Year's Eve, we didn't always have a place to be. And um, so we tried to help each other out with that by, like, we, we started kind of taking the initiative in a way that we hadn't before. And with increasing confidence that other people would, yes, they would love to do Easter brunch or, you know, that yeah, there will be people around on on Fourth of July who are not spending that time with their extended families. So um, those things, taking the initiative is is a big one. Like you said, solitude is also a big one, and um, letting yourself reflect on your situation, letting yourself recognize when you're when you're socially exhausted, when you've been trying to speak another language or trying to understand something, and you're just worn out. Um, to give yourself the grace to say, all right, I just need more breaks than the people around me. (laughs) Um, I would also say uh, my own loneliness, I I like listening to sad music. I like listening to bluegrass, and a lot of it is about loneliness and disappointment. And it doesn't work for everybody, but for me, singing along and feeling that, it just helps me through it. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So many good practical things that that are really helpful, you know, especially thinking through your own, your own singleness journey, as well as, you know, ways in which we can, we can allow ourselves to feel our feelings and not get sucked into them um, are really great practical suggestions. Easter is on its way. If you're looking for a little companion to help you move towards Jesus's resurrection in thoughtful, meaningful ways, may I suggest 
my Holy Week at Home bundle. You'll get several walking devotionals that will help you to meditate on Jesus's Passion Week, and you'll also get a workbook to help you count your joys and your losses, and a few fun activities that you can do with your families or friends, like make a sourdough starter and also make tomb cookies to get into our bodies, whether we're walking or eating, that Jesus's death and resurrection changes everything. You can grab the Holy Week at Home bundle for just $5 in my shop, and you'll find the link in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What else might you suggest? Um for folks who are feeling lonely, they're feeling disconnected from their neighborhoods or their churches or, you know, with COVID-19 and the ways in which that has further isolated us, where do we begin to kind of re-emerge and create community again? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the, the really key things is that we have this chance to kind of restart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would suggest that we start with the people who are physically near us, with neighbors and um, with friends who live nearby. Not everybody lives in a neighborhood where you can walk around, but almost all of us live in a place where we have a neighbor. And um, I think no matter how much you feel you have in common with that person, to communicate that you care, that you notice them, to, you know, you might not even know their names. And um, I think a lot of people find it awkward, especially when you've been around for a long time to introduce yourself. Um, but I would start there. I would I would really start with um, physical neighbors. Mm-hmm. And I would also, uh, ur- I would urge people to think in terms of the quality of their communication with people Hmm. that they're already in relationships with. So there's been a whole lot of zooming, um, Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And that's, that's not a bad mode of communication. You can see people's faces, you can hear their voices. That's a pretty great second best to in person. Mm -hmm. But when you can move those conversations, those interactions to in person, we should, Mm -hmm. and we can, we can move our text conversations to, voice messages or um, in-person phone calls mm-hmm. or, um, you know, even even sometimes emails can feel higher quality, although, you know, that it can go either way on that. But think about what's the best, most personal way mm-hmm. to communicate with those uh, with those loved ones and with those friends and, and try to take that quality up a notch. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's really helpful. And then there's something else that's really important about um, not becoming lonely. And that is when we feel a little bit bad about an interaction we have, when we feel like it was awkward uh, or we we think the other person might have disapproved of us in some way, one of the very few 
things that was shown to actually alleviate loneliness. Um, it was not cocktail parties or lectures from your mother or anything like that. It was actually <laughs> questioning whether things had actually gone badly mm. in those interactions and saying, you know, I feel rejected. What are my grounds for that? Could it have been something else? Mm. And one of the things that that does is it helps us to see things from the other person's perspective. From other people's perspective, it's seldom to do with us. Right, <laughs> it really, right, right. it really might be that their phone ran out of battery. It really might be that they, um, you know, that you know they just had a circumstance that came up. And then also, our expectations of other people. We need to make sure that those are. Um, appropriate for their situation as well as for ours. So sometimes you get, uh, you know, a couple, a mother and a child, for example, or, um, you know, old friends, one of whom has a demanding job and the other who doesn't, they just have very different uh, demands on their time. And the person with less demands might feel that the person with more demands is um, snubbing them or ignoring them. And that other person might just be doing as much as they possibly can. Their regard for for each other might be exactly what it used to be. But if you start having these um, like negative perceptions of that or to feel just pessimistic about the relationship, it can undermine the affection that's really there. And it can make it harder not to feel lonely uh, because of that relationship, not to feel lonely in general. So learning to have those right-sized expectations and learning to question our own, you know, boy, that was awkward uh, moments can also help us a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that just also speaks to the need for, you know, a diversity in our communities too, right? Because there's so much when we are kind of in these echo chambers that we can get very turned in only on ourselves individually. So we can't see in question like you're talking about. Um, so yeah, how do we diversify some of those maybe communities or relationships so that we're not simply, you know, in our own navel gazing (laughs) bed of loneliness or even a communal kind of sense that of of homogeneity, what does that look like? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so to some extent, our communities are always going to include people who are like us in some way. Um, we live in neighborhoods that have people who can either afford rent or, or ownership, um, who have some history there, or, you know, they, there's just going to be something that binds you together. And that's actually great. Um, that's, that's a way that you can relate to people, even if they're different from you in other ways. Uh, likewise, the people who are your colleagues and the people who are, you know, old high school friends there are things that you share with them. And I think even if even if those are things that you want to take with you the rest of your life, they might be in the same position. And I think regarding those people as, uh, as potential friends, as people who you do share something in common with, um, might help you. Uh, in terms of actually diversifying your neighborhood, um, or the or the people around you, a lot of that is going to involve policy level changes. So um, when you're in a position to hire, when you're in a position to uh, 
as a gatekeeper of some sort to make sure that you are regarding all people equally. Um, over time, that will make changes. If you if you don't make that effort, then what happens is that whatever was happening continues to happen <laughs> um, in your neighborhood or or in your workplace. But not all of us are capable of acting at that level. Not all of us are our bosses or selling houses or anything like that. Um, and so I think that the the wonderful thing that we can do is just to relate to people one-on-one in a way that shows care, uh, that seeks out things to admire and enjoy in the other person. And then when we find those to, to keep the ball rolling, to take the initiative, to be people who reach out and show others that we're there for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the most surprising thing that you found in your research? To me, it was that loneliness had not changed much a couple months into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't just my research that showed that a number of surveys came to the same conclusion that um, several months into social distancing, we really didn't see much of an uptick, if any at all. And I think that really speaks to reserves that we had for an emergency. And that's a wonderful thing. I don't think that's going to last. I think that we, you know, you can use up those reserves, but also we do need to have interactions that, that cement and that reaffirm the relationships we have in order to not feel them slipping away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend, you know, for, for folks who are in positions of leadership, you know, particularly in churches or workplaces, um, even families that might be say, okay, these might be like one, one to three kind of small steps I can work at towards having this organization that I am leading to some extent, be a place where people can begin to feel less lonely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fast answer that is also complicated is to foster deep and meaningful relationships among people. Um, and I think that, that it sounds uh, very vague, but in fact, what it is is saying, don't think that you can fix loneliness by starting a new program. Don't think that you can fix loneliness by, you know, picking up your meal delivery delivery programs to the elderly. Um, those are that's a great thing. But unless there is friendship involved, uh, and unless people have the chance to to come to know each other and to have an attachment that they're managing rather than you're managing, um, you're not going to have loneliness addressed. So I also think that leaders, though, can do some top-down things. One of them is just to to not uh, to make sure that people aren't getting so programmed, or that the programs that they're attending, or that the events they're attending, don't crowd out the possibility of conversation and cooperation and friendship. Um, so, for example, if you have a classroom set up where people come in, hear somebody talk, the person stops talking, and they leave. Um, that's, that's a little harder for people to, um, start new relationships in. It can still happen. That's sometimes it does, but what you really want is to allow people to participate and mix and get to know each other. Um, I would also say naming loneliness as a problem and as something you take seriously and as something that, 
um, people that they admire also experience, especially when you're young. Sometimes you need to hear that people you admire experience loneliness and that that's okay and that it's something that can be managed and that most of us do have to manage. Um, I also think one of, one of the main things that undermines our good relationships is when we feel we can't trust someone. And uh, that undermines our, our sense of belongingness and it undermines our ability to form authentic relationships. So if, if leaders aren't being trustworthy, then it will be very hard for the people in their groups to have these lasting relationships that fight off loneliness. And I think trustworthy can be so many things, right? But it, it means that you are, you are telling the truth, you're acting in a way that you know is right and good, and that when you fail in those things, you apologize and change. And I think one of the, the things that we can all say about our institutions is that there's a lot of untrustworthiness that really needs to be addressed. And preferably, it needs to be addressed before that spreads and, um, and makes it hard for people to have relationships within that structure, within that organization. That is really good. That could be a whole other episode. <laughs> Um, you know, as we as we think about what does it look like to build trust and keep trust as leaders um, and institutions in this day and age, but um, maybe we'll talk about that some other time. But oh, that those were really helpful, um, practical, and thoughtful ways that leaders, particularly whether that's family, workplace, churches, um, can begin to to sift through all this data. So thank you for giving us so much to think about and some practical handholds to, to keep us moving forward. But as we conclude, I love to ask all of my guests about their laundry routine. So Susan, tell us, what does your laundry routine look like these days? <laughs> well, I have a toddler um, who, who generally goes through an outfit per meal and um, and <laughs> yeah. often wants to hug me with spaghetti on his hands. So um, nice. we have a lot of laundry around here. We're also near the beach in a tropical place. So um, our laundry routine looks like having laundry baskets in the kitchen that are full of clothes and not just napkins and uh, yeah. in several rooms in the house. And on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, uh, we bring it downstairs and um, I actually have, I've, I've hired someone who does the laundry. Um, she comes and uh, does the laundry and the floors. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. It is something that you can really, in East Africa, it's cool. When we're in the U.S., I will not have that. <laughs> so I'll, I'll right, probably right. be starting it at 6 and finishing it at 9 or 10 p.m. But for now, right, I have the luxury right. that once the laundry is in the bins, I don't have to do much past that point. What a what a treat! I know. Yeah, so in, <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for your for your research and your good thoughts. Um, and let us know, yeah how how can folks follow up um, with you and your work? Yeah, I'm at uh, susanmetis.com, um, which is a website I. Uh, I have kind of a general overview of, of the things that I do there. Um, you can also reach me on Twitter, um, and I'm on Instagram, 
and um, I'm also at Christianity Today. Uh, so you're welcome to reach out to me at smedis at christianitytoday.com. Well, thank you so much, Susan. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for giving us some hope in the ways to think about how we can help alleviate loneliness in our spheres of influence. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you about it. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Susan Metis. You can connect with her at Christianity Today, of course, online, as well as pick up a copy of her book, The Loneliness Epidemic. Those are all linked in the show notes. It is such a privilege to be with you each week and to give you one small step as we begin to move forward and to remember that we have to go back to go forward. And so I would encourage you to do two things this week. The first is to maybe jot down a few notes about your history with loneliness. Is it something that has really increased since the COVID-19 pandemic in March 2020? Have you found that the reserves you have built up have held? And what about the places that you're involved in? Think about maybe your neighborhood or your church, your workplace. What does loneliness look like there? Take just a few minutes to begin to even name your loneliness and to name the ways that you've maybe lost trust in people over the last several years. And then secondarily, I would encourage you to simply reach out to one person that is proximate to you, like Susan was talking about. Maybe it's a neighbor. Go on a walk or leave a pile of cookies on their front door. Maybe it's choosing to up that intimacy level with actually calling someone on the telephone instead of texting. These are small ways that we can begin to alleviate loneliness in the lives of our neighborhoods, in our families, and in our communities. As always, it's such an incredible privilege to be with you. So if you have a moment and you enjoy these conversations, would you leave a review or a rating on iTunes? That helps more people find the podcast. Remember, friends, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?